Hello and welcome to Scrubcast. I'm Eamon Ammer. I'm delighted to have Professor Manus with me again today. He is the director of the Institute of Transplantation here at the Freeman Hospital. Professor Manus, thank you for coming again. Thank you for inviting me back. It was um, an interesting time last time. Let's hope it gets better. So in the last episode of Scrubcast, we talked about cholangiocarcinoma, its types, and the uh, various treatment options. Uh, Today, the focus is on hepatocellular carcinoma. This is the fifth most common neoplasm worldwide and in the top five cancer killers. So it's common and dangerous, Prof. It is. Um, It's an interesting disease because in different parts of the world, it has a different um, trajectory and prognosis. I mean, obviously, there are a number of risk factors. In particular, the hepatitis, viral hepatitis. And in certain parts of the world, such as the Far East, hepatitis B is the biggest risk factor where the the virus gets into the DNA of the cell and results in malignant change. In the West, that's not very common. It's almost always associated in the West with cirrhosis. Underlying cirrhosis has always been the prerequisite, especially in men. Um, Over the last few years, the issue of non-alcoholic steatohepatitis or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease has become much more prominent and we know that about 10 to 20 percent of patients with NAFLD will get HCC without cirrhosis. So just having the the presence of NAFLD will result in cirrhosis. And what about hepatitis B? Is that another example of a risk factor which can lead to HCC without cirrhosis? Yes, so I'd say 70 percent of the HCCs in the Far East occurring in the setting of hepatitis B are non-serotic, which gives them a very different treatment option compared to the, the West. And I believe that's because of the fact that it incorporates its uh, oncogenes into the DNA. Into yeah. the DNA yeah. of the. Uh, I mean, if you take HCC in Africa, for example, it's a very different animal, and that's associated with the environment and particular things like aflatoxin. And those, those HECs are really aggressive, and the chances of curing them are, really, are far less than the ones we get associated with cirrhosis or alcoholic liver disease, for example. So we know that the incidence of HCC is increasing, and that's not just because of greater ability at diagnosing these lesions. But with the uh, introduction of uh, DAAs for hepatitis C, do you think the incidence of HCC will reduce in the future? Well, actually, what's happened is it's, the incidence of HCC has gone up with the introduction of DAAs. And we're not really sure why that is. Um, but it appears that the more you eradicate the hepatitis C, the, the higher the risk of HCC. I think we have to wait and see what happens with that. Yeah, because the, the evidence for that is, uh, is conflicting, isn't it? There was a paper that came out recently that says actually DAAs do not increase the risk of, of HCC. Um, but it's merely a factor of improved uh, management of cirrhosis in general that we now that these patients are now living longer and therefore you know the fact that HCC appears is just a matter of time in these patients and maybe I mean uh, it, it may be an epiphenomenon it may not be important but at the moment there's a lot of controversy as to whether it is associated with increased HCC okay so we know that HCC is more common in males by a factor of two to four. And we also know that adenomas, which can be a precursor of hepatocellular carcinomas, 
um, are more likely to turn into malignant lesions in males than they are in females. Um, I think we need to be careful about that. I think adenomas are misdiagnosed in males, um, and they're well-differentiated HCCs, to be honest. But, yeah, you're right. If you get an adenoma in a male, you need to be really concerned that this is a well-differentiated cancer, particularly males who are on, for example, steroids, uh, anabolic steroids. You'd be, be very concerned. Females get adenomas based on the estrogen um, related to the contraceptive pill. And we know that there are receptors in adenomas that are estrogen receptors. We know there are four types of adenomas, and the two that are associated with potential risk of cancer are the beta-catenin mutations and uh, and the inflammatory adenomas. But having said all that, the paper that described cancer in adenomas comes from a center in India with a very small number of patients. So actually the true incidence of cancer in adenomas we're not really sure about. We now, what we're doing is we are taking them out um, because of the concern based on biopsies or size. And there's now a move, particularly amongst the French centers, to, to not do that and to embolize them. Um, again, I think the current dogma is that if you have an adenoma in a male, it's almost always considered a precursor HCC or well-differentiated HCC. If it's in a female and it's growing or you have a biopsy, you should take it out. So I think the bottom line is adenomas come out. Okay, and these would lead to HCCs on a background of a normal liver rather than a cirrhotic liver. Yeah, normal liver, yeah. Okay, so in the case of cirrhotic livers, the pre-malignant sequence, I presume, is hyperplastic nodules followed by low-grade dysplasia, then high-grade dysplasia, then yeah. then malignant transformation. So it will follow that adenoma to carcinoma sequence, like you have anywhere. You get a, for example, you get a polyp in a gallbladder, starts as an adenoma, becomes a carcinoma. You get a, an adenoma or a or a regenerative nodule in a liver that's cirrhotic. That regenerative nodule becomes malignant, um, and so I presume that's why the 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 actual progression of the disease is so different to if it's a cancer from something else. So it's this aging process of the cells, really, and, and lack of apoptosis. Mm. And the, the pathological transformation is, is interesting because these lesions, they lose the normal architecture with portal triads, and they develop this new arterial yeah, so supply. They, which Their blood supply changes. So you go from a regenerative nodule, which has really a venous blood supply from the portal circulation and through the, the transformation they become very arterialized which helps make when we try and make the diagnosis based on imaging and so as you go through the transition you get you can get a nodule within a nodule which means there's a hypervascular nodule inside a venous nodule and then that becomes totally arterialized when it's an early well differentiated cancer and we use that looking at the scans, the images of, on MRI and CT. Which is why we get this diagnostic uncertainty somewhere in the stage where it develops from these tiny dysplastic nodules to a, a full-blown HCC. Yeah. And size does matter in HCC, doesn't it? So when you're in the region of, you know, one so sub-centimeter and then one to two centimeters, it's still, mm. it's growing, it's, it's becoming less differentiated and more... Yeah. Invasive. So, so size, size does matter. You're right. 
For HCC, under one centimeter is called indeterminate. For the easel guidelines in the past used to say between one and two centimeters is indeterminate. They've changed that. So under one centimeter is indeterminate. Above one centimeter, if they're hypervascular nodules, they are essentially now hepatocellular cancers. But I think most centers would still regard them as probably needing biopsy if there's no cirrhosis. So if you're not cirrhotic and you've got a hypervascular nodule of a centimeter, then you still need a biopsy. But if you are cirrhotic, easel guidelines, I think you can assume that it's an HCC now. So speaking of easel, the most recent easel guidelines that were published in 2018, we know that all cirrhotic patients, childs A and B, and those that are child C that are waiting transplantation should be under surveillance, and that is ultrasound surveillance every six months. But also hepatitis B is a separate entity, particularly those that are an intermediate or a high risk of developing HCC should be surveyed. Are there any other groups, Prof, you know, you would survey? Well, I mean, anyone, anyone, obviously, anyone's cirrhosis has to be surveyed. Don't forget, the screening an at-risk population is very different to screening the population. Mm. And we mustn't confuse the two. Screening for HCC in the population is not very effective. Screening an at-risk population, obviously, is very different. So cirrhotics are at risk. Anyone with hepatitis is at risk. Um, I think NAFL patients now are becoming much more of a bigger risk to be screened. And we in Newcastle showed, were the first centre to show HCC developing in non-slotted NAFL patients. And so now I think it's been accepted worldwide now that they are a risk factor and should be screened. Okay, other than ultrasound, would you recommend alpha-feta-protein for screening? I think alpha-feta-protein is still part of the screening. I mean, the problem is that we know... If you take an alcoholic group, 50% of them won't have positive AFP. That is the only biomarker we currently have. Um, although there are many others being trialed, like Lipocran 3, um, like uh, other versions of AFP, but AFP is still the one that's used in most models, really. And you mentioned the uh, the easel diagnostic strategy for subcentimeter nodules, indeterminate lesions, and then the recall for those patients who have those lesions. After ultrasound, what would the next diagnostic modality be? Well, I think there's there's controversy about what the best modality is other than ultrasound. Certain centers will use quadruple phase or four-phase CT scanning, and some centers will use MRI. I think... Currently, the feeling is that most new, up-to-date CT scanners are probably more accurate than MRI scanners are. But there are centers who have a huge experience with MRI, so they will go to that. In our center, we'll go to a four-phase CT scan. Okay. It's worth mentioning at this point that the, uh, the main radiological diagnostic feature of HCC is the presence of hyperarterialization of that nodule in that first phase, in the arterial phase, which is the first 30 seconds after injecting a contrast, yeah. and and then washout. So this is the word that we hear a lot. So washout means that the tumor becomes hypovascular compared to the adjacent parenchyma. But for washout to be there in the late or the portal phase, there has to be hypervascularization in the early phase. You can't just have hypodensity 
um, without there being a shining lesion before that. Yeah, if the if the lesion conforms to that, that means you require the blood supply to be arterialized into the center of the lesion, and then venous outflow peripherally, which is different to when it's a regenerative nodule, which is exactly the other way around. But don't forget, about 10% of HCCs don't conform to that. And patients with NAFLD, their tumors do not conform to that a lot of the time. So there are caveats all over the place. Which is why the easel guidelines suggest that if you don't have a slam dunk diagnostic no. scan, then you move on to the next modality. And interestingly, in the 2018 guidelines, they've introduced contrast-enhanced ultrasound. Yeah as a third modality, but it's not, not a first-line. No, contrast and ultrasound has come and gone through many phases. And, you know, in, in the 90s, when it was introduced by Kudo from Japan, it was thought to be the next great diagnostic tool. But actually, it can be quite inaccurate and misleading. And it is very operator-dependent. So that's why it's not a first-line investigation. But they have brought it back into the guidance because it can help in conjunction with cross-sectional imaging, the first ultrasound, and the clinical presentation. It can help. And you can you can now fuse contrast ultrasounds. The new machines can fuse the image with the CT scan. Makes it more accurate. So these are stabilized microbubbles that are given intravenously. And um, the, the advantage of this is that the operator can see it re in real time. Obviously, as you say, it is operator-dependent. But as opposed to contrast that we use for CT or MRI, the microbubbles are confined in the nodule for longer. And there are ways, obviously, to uh, differentiate between hepatocellular carcinoma and cholangiocarcinoma. I mean, the problem with, mi with microbubbles is other tumors, such as colorectal metastases, other metastases, that can be very confusing. What about PET-CT? So PET-CT has never been a great modality for HCC. I mean, HCCs do not pick up FDG very avidly. There are other contrast agents for PET that are being trialed for HCC. Okay, and when would you biopsy an indeterminate lesion? So any any patient who's not cirrhotic, who has a lesion that does not conform to criteria. In fact, the criteria are for cirrhotics. So in non-cirrhotics, I think the only way to really be sure is to biopsy. So I'd say... As a blanket statement, non-cirrhotics should have a biopsy. And of course, all cirrhotics who have lesions that are not that diagnosed. Yeah. conform to the diagnostic paradigm. Right. So over the years, there have been a lot of staging systems that have been introduced to try and predict outcomes with hepatocellular carcinoma. The commonest of these is the Barcelona Clinic liver cancer staging system. Why is that, why is that the most I mean, widely used? I think... Um, I think the Barcelona staging system stood the test of time because it's easy to use and it combines a number of factors in the staging, which includes pathology of the lesion, it includes the clinical staging, and it includes things like portal hypertension, which is very important to decide on, on treatment modalities. And it's now upgraded to include things like CERT. Um, so it's been much more dynamic than, than the other staging systems. A lot of the other staging systems were based on size and pathology. And one or two, like the Italian system, had some clinical side to it, but wasn't easy to use. Um, and the Japanese system was very much about tumor portal vein invasion, whereas the Barcelona one is much much easier to use for the general medical population. I mean, 
when you look at it, it, it's clearly evolved over time, hasn't it? I mean, it's not just stage A, B, C, and D. There's an early stage yeah. zero in there. That must have been introduced later. No, no, they've all been, it's been very dynamic. They've, they've made it much more uh, pragmatic as the years have gone on. So as you say, the, the system relies on three main things, and that's tumor burden, the background liver function, and the patient's functional status. And the majority of these stages depend on a preserved liver function and uh, reasonable functional status. Um, so the very early stages, the tumor less than two centimeters, which is treated by ablation. Yeah, so I think any tumor, under, certainly under one centimeter, it must ablate. Between one and two depends on, on the center, but usually most people are being encouraged to ablate those tumors rather than subject them to resection or transplantation. But then if I look at the very early stage and early stage, a lot of those cases in the early stage will either undergo resection or ablation. We'll talk about transplantation shortly. But why has there been this distinction between the very early stage and the early stage? Um, I think the outcome is different. Mm. So very early stage is, is patients who have been picked up with screening and you can ablate them and get rid of the tumor. The early stage probably has a worse prognosis, so... Okay, so then we've got the intermediate stage, which is treated with TACE, transarterial chemoembolization, and then the advanced stage, which uh, this is where the performance status starts to deteriorate, um, and you've got advanced disease outside the liver or vascular invasion, um, and these are the ones that require systemic treatment, so, so not with um, conventional chemotherapy, but with uh, serafinib. And then you've got the terminal stage, which is very poor performance status, and those are for best supportive yeah. care and palliation. So there is a stepwise manner here. So, for example, if you had an early-stage tumor prof, but the patient wasn't fit for resection, ablation, or transplantation, would you then move on to the next treatment modalities? Yeah, and that's quite that's not uncommon. So you'd probably use TACE. Okay, so you'd use in those centers. Ah, so you'd move on to the next step in the BCLC uh, yeah. uh, ladder. Okay. And don't forget that TACE is not an innocuous treatment. So if you don't have good liver function, TACE can make patients pretty ill. And so what's not in the current BCLC classification is radioembolization. Um, and that's in a lot of modifications of it, people are putting in radioembolization like we have in our modification. So you can use radioembolization instead of TACE. And in the studies that were done, and there were there have been four very big randomized trials. The thing that came out the most was it's far less debilitating for the patient to get radioembolized rather than taste. And the liver function is not as effective as much. The patients tolerate it far better. Yeah, and um, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but portal vein thrombosis, certainly tumor thrombosis is a contraindication in taste, whereas it isn't in certs. That's right. So radio, radio. I mean, portal, main portal vein thrombosis, you can have you can have segmental vein thrombosis and you can still taste them, but right. main portal vein is definitely a contraindication. Right. And big tumors, so anything like 10 centimeters, but those aren't resectable generally. But 10 centimeter tumors you wouldn't taste because of the risk of, of sepsis and, and necrosis and abscess formation. Okay, can I ask you, about these early tumors, when would you resect and when would you ablate? So the resection, I think everyone everyone should be assessed for resection because that's, in terms of outcome, probably better than ablation, 
Well, there have been six randomized trials comparing a resection to ablation in early tumors. And of those, of those six trials, one came out positive for surgery. The others were all equivalent. The most recent data comes from Hong Kong, and they, they show surgery to be superior. Does that depend on no. the tumor size? Yeah, so, so any tumor greater than 5 centimeters should not be resected. They've, they've went up to 5 centimeters. I think most centers would be concerned about tumors greater than 3 centimeters to be resected, but you, up to 5 centimeters is what's the standard acceptance. But the big thing about resection is the two issues. One is very high recurrence rate, and the second thing is portal hypertension. So if you've got portal hypertension, then your risk of surviving the procedure is far less. So we 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 do use um, um, hepatic vein wedge pressure to assess portal hypertension, and in our center, anything above ten, we don't we don't resect. Some of the Italian centers have have used platelet count as the only marker, and so if the platelet count is above a hundred then you could probably safely resect them. I still very very concerned with a big spleen and lots of portal hypertension that a lot of these patients, once you resect them, they develop massive ascites, they develop SBP, they get chest infections, they get liver failure, so you have to be very careful. So for the for the cirrhotics obviously you have that you have that issue with post operative complications yeah. and, and liver failure. It's a no-brainer, I presume, for the non-serotics. Yeah, so for the non-serotics, as long as you've got a good enough functional liver reserve, I would reset any size. So this doesn't apply to non-serotics. Right. So, so what can you do to try and minimize the risk of uh, liver failure and uh, post-operative complications in a serotic who is um, about to undergo a liver resection for HCC? Unfortunately, there's very little you can do. So you have to make sure you, you absolutely understand the FLR in the particular patient. You need to make sure they don't have ongoing issues in their liver. So alcoholics, they're drinking actively and they've got hepatitis, they're not going to survive. You need to make sure there's no stereohepatitis, active disease. Um, if you're concerned about that, you should not be resecting them. The problem with liver failure post-op is it's really unpredictable. If you are concerned, then you you have to manipulate the FLR either preoperatively using portal embolization or CERT, and we've done that in the past. So we've used radio embolization to try and grow the FLR. So it is all dependent on the volume of liver. The future for, liver remnants. For cirrhotics, you want 40% at minimum left behind, and the more you can leave behind, the better. So is it fair to say that to assess a patient's suitability for liver resection, you would check whether they've got portal hypertension, then you would um, assess the extent of hepatectomy that you need. So is it a minor or a major resection? And then you look at their their liver function in general. Yeah. I think the resection is preserved for child's A. I mean, I think when you're going outside of child's A, you are asking for trouble. There are certain Italian centers that do. We have a lot of experience. But for the UK, I think Charles A are the resectable patients. And you're right. It has to be about what you're leaving behind. There has to be enough. And to ensure that you can clear the tumor. So it's pointless doing a, a resection without a good 
R0 resection margin because the recurrence rate after surgery is so high. And the recurrence rate is not only at the tumor margin, but it's de novo recurrence, which means recurrence in the cirrhotic liver because it is a field change. It's a fertile ground for further cancers. And would it be contraindicated to resect if you employed a technique to um, to hypertrophy the FLR and the liver failed to hypertrophy? I think so. I think there's um, uh, Jacques Belgetti, who was in Clichy in Paris, did some interesting work looking at the response to taste and response to poor nebulization. And uh, if patients fall apart after taste, they should not be resected. And if patients don't hypertrophy after poor nebulization, they should not be resected. And what determines the extent of resection when you look at an image? I think, I think for, as opposed to colorectal metastases, where a lot of the time we're preserving liver parenchyma and, and doing metastectomies, the evidence from the French, from the Canadian study, is that you need to resect a proper segment because of what we just spoken about, the, the satellite nodules that you often can't see. So if you just go and whoop around at HCC, you have a risk of leaving tumor behind. So if you do a segmental resection, your outcome and your recurrence rate is far lower than if you're doing just a whoop around a tumor. Mm. So you should try and always do a formal segmental resection. And if that means you're going to compromise FLR, then then you either shrink the tumor down using taste or radioembolization, or you don't resect them. So moving on to liver transplantation, Prof. I suppose liver transplantation for HCC kills many birds with one stone. It gets rid of the main tumour, it gets rid of all the satellite nodules and pre-neoplastic lesions around the tumour, it gets rid of the underlying cirrhosis, and therefore the risk of recurrence is reduced. Um, And also you get rid of these post-operative complications that you would get with, you know, resecting a cirrhotic liver. So... This is great. What could go wrong? I mean, am I oversimplifying the situation? No, not at all. You're not. Absolutely right. You know, it's oncologically the most sound thing to do. You're removing all the blood vessels. You're removing the, the fertile land for cancer. And, um, and you're getting rid of any risk of recurrence or keeping the risk of recurrence much lower. The problem is we don't have livers that, that we can do that on for everyone. And, we know that that there are some surrogate markers of poor outcome. So I'm sure you're going to go on to talk about the Milan criteria. What are the Milan criteria? They're very restrictive criteria. They, re- they were brought in at a time when HCC was being transplanted left, right, and center. And there was, no, there was no thought into who would do well and who would do badly because liver transplant was in its infancy. And a lot of patients who were transplanted were cancer patients who had no hope. And if you go back into that very early data um, in the early 1990s and late 1989, it was published from Tom Stasel's group. There are a group of patients in there with massive tumors that did amazingly well. So the first thing to say is that the biology of the tumor has to be considered really carefully. So biology makes a difference in our, to outcome. Mazafero brought in the Milan criteria because um, as liver transplant became more popular, more patients were transplanted and the outcomes got worse. 
because people were not thinking about what they were doing. And so as a surrogate to biopsy, because there was a concern about biopsy and you would spread the disease, as a surrogate biopsy, he brought in these criteria, which was about the size of the tumor, the number of nodules there were, and and the presence of invasion of the major blood vessels. And he said if the size of the tumor was greater than 5 centimeters, or there were more than 3 at 3 centimeters, they did much worse. That was based on 48 patients published in a paper in 1993. Actually, it stood the test of time because we know that the bigger the tumor, the more likely you are to have arterial invasion or vascular invasion with poorer outcome. So size is, is an important marker, probably the most important. He also showed that the more, the more nodules there were, the more tumors you had, the worse outcome. So they were good surrogate markers. And as the years have gone on, from 93 to the mid-2000s, there were good publications showing low recurrence rates, and good five-year survival using Milan criteria. When you compare the patients who were resected in the Milan criteria, so in other words, if they were in Milan criteria, one five-centimeter tumor, and they were resected, and you compare that group to patients who were transplanted, the transplant patients did much better because the recurrence rate was so much lower. So it is probably the best treatment for this disease. Okay, but we've been trying to push that. Well, I say we, the transplant community has been trying to push these boundaries over the past decade or so, probably longer, to go beyond Milan. Um, so we get these newer systems like the UCSF criteria. So you know, how far can we push this? Okay, so again, the critics of the Milan criteria were largely based on the fact that, yeah, we've done really well, getting good 75% fiber survival with these criteria. But there are all these other patients, which we did years before, which we showed had good outcome. And there are people we're letting die because they're not fitting into this very restrictive criteria. So let's expand it. So how do you expand it? Do you increase the size? Do you increase the number? Do you ignore vascular invasion? Do you look at AFP? How do you increase it in a way that doesn't result in much worse outcome. And a number of centers tried to do this. And there are seven different criteria for expanding the Milan doctrine. Um, the one that's, that you mentioned is the UCSF criteria. That is the one that's taken off and probably had the best outcome outside of Milan. And the reason it's had the best outcome is because actually the majority of the patients that were transplanted were in the Milan criteria. Now, don't forget that Milan criteria are based on imaging. It's not about explants. So that when you take the liver out, a lot of the time the disease is more advanced than what you think it is. So it's an, an imaging modality. The UCSF criteria is a pathological criteria. So it's once the liver's out. That retrospective work was done on pathology specimens, so if you look at the amount of disease between the two criteria, that's very different. So the UCFF, UCSF says up to 8 centimeters as a total volume of disease. And if that's a three-dimensional ball, that's a significant amount of more disease than Milan has. So if you then extend beyond that, 
Then you're talking about a huge amount of disease. And all the other centers beyond UCSF have had bad outcomes. So that's why it's not taken off. But UCSF has got good outcome. And the, the French, uh, the French collaborative published by Deakins about uh, two or three years ago looked at Milan criteria, UCSF criteria, and beyond UCSF. And all those transplants that were done. And Milan and UCSF are pretty much the same. So your five-year survival is in the region of between 75 and 80 percent. And as soon as you go beyond Milan, so that's to things like the Essen or uh, the Japanese criteria or the rule of sevens, the, the outcome drops significantly. So, yeah, we've been trying to expand this, but every time we try to expand it, we run into trouble, except for UCSF. But is the explanation for that then that, uh, just as you said, it's because it's based on pathological um, measurements, and therefore, given that it's only one and a half centimeters between the two, so, you know, so rather than five centimeters for one, it's six and a half, and rather than three centimeters for three lesions, it's four and a half. Is it not just the variation in measurement between pathology and, and radiology? Are we just talking about the same thing here? It may be. It may be. Because actually, when you look at some of the explants in the Milan group, the, the disease is more extensive than you thought it was. So you may be right. But once you go beyond UCSF, eight centimeters in total, whether you're looking at a solitary lesion of 6.8 or 6.5 or where you're looking at accumulation of nodules, beyond 8 centimeters seems to be a bridge too far. That results in poorer outcome. Although within that group, you'll find people who do really well. But how do you, how do you involve the whole group of patients waiting? And so what we've done is decided to go back to downstaging the disease. So we know that the evidence from UNOS is that if you take patients who are outside of Milan criteria, irrespective of what they're, how far they're outside, and you downstage them or downsize the tumors back into the Milan criteria, and then you transplant them, the outcome is exactly the same as if they had started in Milan. So the way to deal with this problem of people who have got big tumors who you think you're disadvantaging is to downstage them into Milan or UCSF criteria. And so that's what's currently happening in the UK. There's a, there's a service evaluation looking at patients that you can downstage into Milan. And downstage, you can do anything you like. You can actually downstage with surgery if you want. That's quite high risk. Um, but downstage with taste, with radioembolization, and then reassess them in six months. And if they stay in Milan and they don't, grow out of control, then you transplant them. And that is based on the Duveau criteria. And the French use those criteria for transplant normally, but we only use it for patients who've been downstaged. And the Duveau criteria involves size, number, and very importantly, AFP. Now, I think you can't ignore AFP because we know that AFP, the rising AFP comes the results in a poor outcome. So in the UK, over a thousand is a contraindication. The work from Birmingham, very elegant work, looked at AFP and at what point the patient started to fall off their perch. And the AFP level in that study was 476, so it's not very high. So AFP plus size and number produces a score called the Duveau score. And if it's greater than two, then we can't transplant the patient. 
So that's um, that's downstaging, uh, which is one of the two neoadjuvant treatment uh, strategies that we use potentially prior to transplantation. The other strategy here is is bridging. Now, there's a difference between these two concepts in the in the starting point. Well, bridging is bridging people to transplant. So um, these are already these, these are patients are already on, on the waiting list. They're yeah. within Milan, and you want to keep them in Milan. So that's very different to people outside Milan. So bridging is bridging people from the point of entering the waiting list to the point of transplant. So we know that there's been lots of work on how long you can wait um, because the tumor is growing. And on average, it's around about four months. So Toronto, uh, Japan, uh, Barcelona in particular, four months, between four and seven months is, is the period of time. Over four months, the risk of falling off the waiting list increases. After seven months, they all fall off. So you want to keep them, keep them on the waiting list. So you're adding some bridging therapy, and that is either ablation or radium lowering your taste. So the the concept is different, but the techniques are the same. Yeah. So you either yeah ablate, um, resect, yeah. or I didn't like, know that resection could be possible in in, in yeah, downstate. So re- resection, you can you can resect patients and and get them into Milan criteria. But that's a higher risk strategy. Mm-hmm. The other option is is to is to use resection as a form of bridging. And that's that has been done in France, particularly in Paris. So in other words, someone who's you've decided you're going to transplant, you then go ahead and resect the patient's tumor, preferably laparoscopically. And then they then they stay on the waiting list till they get a liver. That strategy was compared to the salvage transplant strategy. So bridging resection versus salvage transplantation. So you bridge re- resect by bridging till you transplant, or you resect and then you wait for the recurrence and you salvage with the transplant. And actually, the the comparison made between the two centers that did that showed that salvage had a much worse outcome than bridging. So this is pretty much uh, resecting and then preempting any future yeah. recurrence. Is that the strategy that we employ here in the UK? Well, I mean, it's it's one of the strategies you're allowed to use. Looking at the patients who've been who have had some kind of therapy to get them into a transplant criteria, none of the patients have had surgery. They've all had embolization. And why is that? Why do we not resect? I, mean, I don't think the the UK surgeons have a resection ethos. I mean, I think it's growing slowly. Whereas places like like Italy, where every other patient had cirrhosis, you had to become a favour with resecting them. So just to confirm, um, we do employ the Milan criteria here in the UK for patient selection for transplantation, but it's slightly modified in that, as you say, Prof, we, we also add a third group, which is lesions between five and seven centimeters that do not progress over a six-month period prior to listing them. Um, the, the way it works is everyone is in the Milan criteria. If you have a tumor that is above five centimeters, you can't be listed. Okay. What happens is you get you get a six-month period of, of watching. In that time, you can treat the patient. At the end of the six months, there can't be a greater than 20% increase in size. Now, 20% increase in size in a 7 centimeter lesion is tiny, and it's very difficult to measure 
which is the problem we found with this criteria. The other criteria that we have changed is the number of lesions. So we're allowed to go up to five lesions up to three centimeters. And that is employed routinely now. And in terms of contraindications here, you've got the obvious, which are vascular invasion and extrahepatic spread. But we also, as you say, look at um, alpha-fetoprotein. So anything above 1,000 is a contraindication. Yeah. It, used to, it used to be 10,000, but mm. we thought we realized that was far too high, especially with the Birmingham data showing at 476, you actually start to lose. Right, lesions. right. And obviously, if the tumor ruptures, that's also a yeah. contraindication. Yeah. Um, if I move on to TACE as a non-curative alternative option in those patients with uh, more advanced disease than the early stages, um, what's our practice here in Newcastle? Um, we we um, we will taste patients who are suitably fit for taste as the primary primary treatment. We often do taste and ablation together because we we found that they ablate better once you taste them because you reduce the arterialization. Um, we have published now our, our results. We're one of the only centers where we do do that, and the evidence is, is that the ablation is much more successful. We are much very pro-ablation, but using it in combination with taste gives better outcome. Patients who don't, who are not ablation candidates are given the option of taste, um, but they have to have good liver function. We ca what we can't do is is push them into decompensation by tasting them. We have a very active radioembolization program here, so we would preferentially give cert to patients than taste if they're not suitable for it. But if they were to receive taste, um, have we now moved on to drug eluting beads? Yeah, so we use so there's two forms of taste: there's conventional taste, which is using uh, lipidol, um, which is a which is a lipophilic contrast medium. And to that is added adromycin or, or, or um, um, doxorubicin. And doxorubicin also is lipophilic, so it sticks to the lipidol, goes into the tumor, and it's held in the tumor by the lipidol. We, we preferentially use um, uh, um, debtase, which are, which are drug-eluting beads. Um, that's because we feel it stays in the tumor longer. And actually, we use lumi beads, which are drug-eluting beads with contrast, so that when we inject them, we can see where they've been, where they've gone, and then that gives us a nice marker for when we want to ablate the patients. And just finally, looking at palliative options for these patients, uh, we did mention initially that uh, conventional chemotherapy doesn't work very well for HCC, and therefore, for those patients who can withstand systemic therapy, but aren't candidates for resection, transplantation, or CERT, those patients will receive uh, serafinib. That's a new uh, therapy, relatively, relatively new. speaking. Relatively new. The trial, the SHARP trial, and there were two trials, one called the SHARP trial, and another one, an Australasian study, which showed benefit compared to best supportive care. If you use serafinib, which is a, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, the benefit was minimal, but it was statistically beneficial that's why people get it a lot of the patients don't get through the whole course they have dose reductions they stop early um, if you get through the whole course then it is quite successful in some patients there are newer drugs now like nivolumab 
for example, which is uh, nivolumab is um, is used first line um, for certain patients, as opposed to regorafenib, which is in second line. And um, nivolumab is um, is a PD one inhibitor, which is is equivalent in its activity to serafinib in the study that we've done. And obviously, it's worth mentioning that uh, in order to start these uh, treatments, you do need a biopsy to confirm HCC. Yeah, that's right. And that's a nice requirement at the moment. But having said all that, I think the treatment of HCC is evolving. Um, in, in the old days, it was very much about the rules that we followed. Um, and as you mentioned, the Barcelona Clinic classification... Um, the rules we follow for transplantation or resection. Um, I think that that uh, ethos has changed and people are starting to personalize treatment. So certainly in places like Italy, where you have Vincenzo Mazzaferro, who, who wrote the Milan criteria, his view now is to move from gatekeeper to Rubik's Cube. In other words... Instead of, instead of just following rules blindly for everyone, that every patient is like a Rubik's Cube and, and getting to the solution will be different for everyone. Um, and I think I like that way of thinking. Individualizing care for each Certainly, to personalize the care. Um, some patients may, um, may have treatments that were identified for advanced stage in a much earlier stage. So to migrate the, the strategy of treatment to, towards the early stages so that you can get better results. I think that's going to become a much bigger thing in the future. Professor Manus, thank you very much for your time today. As usual, it's been an absolute pleasure having you here. Thank you for having me. I loved it. Every minute of it. Thank you very much. Join me again for another episode of Scrubcast in due course where we'll move towards more benign territory. Until then, thank you very much and goodbye. So, uh, Prof, um, do you enjoy jokes about eyes? Yes. I'm sure you do. The cornea, the better. (laughs) 